can ask your question again. Sorry to interrupt you there. Not really sorry, but <laughs> got to say. There we go. We're on. Yeah. So let's just say that my intuition is telling me that I'm about to lose something that's like very close to me, very dear to me, or it's been very dear to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the practice has been, been good to me, I suppose, throughout this time when I'm seeing this, but I know soon enough, it's going to, it's probably going to be like an, an event where it's, where it's really over. And I just want to know, like, if you have anything to say on like how one could prepare and be sure to be wise in that situation with regard to it, so as not to feel so much grief and pain when you do lose it. Yes. And I will give you this one out of my own practical experience. Okay. And that it comes from something else that I have learned because in a way, um, there's a, a twin issue with that, and that is, is that when we remember in the past our wrongdoing, and therefore guilt, remorse, and other feelings will come up, okay? And that, in fact, the feeling that comes up is similar to, if not the same feeling, as that sense of loss when we lose something. In a way, when we remember that we've done something to our uh, that was harmful to ourselves or that we made a huge mistake or we disgusted someone or we showed ourselves to be an ignoramus or whatever like that, and we remember that later, that feeling in a way is like the, the sense of loss of our own view of who we were. In other words, I've got this idea that, hey, I'm okay right now, and then I'll remember some piece of trash I did, and now I've lost that sense of well-being, and there's also a sense of loss. Just like you've lost an object, something precious to you. That, in fact, it's quite possible for people to feel that months after they've sold their favorite car. For instance, that happens a lot when the guy's got a really spiff um, chick magnet, they call it. And then yeah. he gets a chick with his magnet. And yeah. then she wants a real car. And now he's got to get rid of this chick magnet to keep the chick. And so he sells that car he loves so much. And then yeah. six months later, he remembers that car with that deep sense of loss. Oh, I had it. And I have lost it. The Buddha talks about that. And it doesn't matter if it's the car or the chick that you lost, right? It's the same feeling. It doesn't matter what it is that you've lost, whether it's a sense of self through the recognition that you're not up to your, your own scratch, or that it's a laptop that got water on it and it's dead, poof, with smoke coming out of it, never to arise again. Or it's a TV that uh, just goes on the fritz and uh, never to display a signal again. And yeah. that, that, that time when you recognize this television just didn't turn off and I can turn it back on, it is dead meat. That sense of loss will be there. Okay? 
So that's a kind of a small thing, but I uh, but the car may be something bigger. A mother losing one's mother is also a really really big deal for a lot of people. I would say that there's something wrong with guys who <laughs> don't you know let's throw mother off the train. <laughs> yeah. But basically, whenever anyone loses their mom. They that's that person is the one that they connect with deeper than anyone else into the past, into reality, into uh, the religious past of the mom, the culture, everything. Our deepest connection to culture is through our mom. And you're going to lose her if you haven't already. All right. The question is, how are you going to feel when you lose your mom? And I'm using that only as an example of with Murphy's law that. Um, uh, so let's go back to that and and uh, clarify it really quickly. Murphy's law states that anything that can go wrong will go wrong and it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. OK. And so in the Buddha Dhamma, we would say that uh, Murphy's Law would be, be restated is, is that any bad feeling that I can have, I will have. And I'm going to have it at a really big point. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. That's, that's the restatement <laughs> of Murphy's Law in Buddha Dhamma. Any bad feeling that I can have, I will have. And I'm going to have it big time at a big time moment. Mm. Right, yeah. So, uh, anicca anatta dukkha. Uh, pardon? Anicca anatta dukkha. Yes. Anicca, everything is in turmoil. Everything is changing. One of these changes comes by, you might not like it so much. <laughs> so, okay. Do you mind if I ask a, a follow up question? Go right, go right ahead. Would you like to continue? Okay, sure. So, you know, nonetheless, though, you know, one could argue that there's a real difference between losing your TV and losing your mom. You know, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty big sort of difference. There's a big, big difference. Why is the feeling so similar then? Just one's know. more intense and longer lasting. But look at the sensations that the body has is because it's the same chemical system. It's a, it's a feeling of loss. Sure. And you're right, the intensity is a lot worse, but the feeling is, is kind of the same mm-hmm. in a sense. Yep. Oh, no, something's gone wrong. Oh, no. You know, but in fact, it's the oh, no is the similarity with, with each one of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we can look at both of those things, that sense of loss, even if we remorse over something that we've done wrong in the past. One of the ways of dealing with that is not by trying to forgive oneself. We can see the Christianity that doesn't work. What instead we have to do is, is that we have to renounce it. We have to turn around with it. We have to say, I refuse now to do that anymore. If I, if I did it then and I feel bad about it now, that means that I will refrain from doing this in the future. Only by turning loose, letting go, relinquishing it, and say, I am done with that. And then we will put up restraints to make sure that we don't bring it back again. 
Okay. So that's the way that we handle remorse is by renouncing the activity that brings us remorse. Because we recognize that that remorse probably came because of, let us say, some event that happened that can be interpreted within the realm of the precepts, either wrong, wrong action or wrong speech, wrong livelihood, cheating people, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, harming someone, you know, any of those kind of things that's covered by the precepts. If we do one of those things and we feel really crappy about it when we remember it later and i'm talking about years later i'm a 75 year old man i have done so much crap i can sit here and just feel really bad non-stop uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> where, where are you from by the way where am i from Perhaps the easiest way to answer that is, is that there has been a long old series of passports that have been issued by the United States government. Sure, but, but I mean, like, what part? Like, maybe, like, if I had to guess, I'd say, like, Tennessee, Texas, I don't know, something along those lines. How about North and South Carolina and Texas? Okay, there you go. Why not? With a little bit of Georgia and uh, a whole lot of Oklahoma mixed in. But, yeah, guilty, Your Honor. <laughs> but that is only in the voice. The, the mind doesn't fit there. This round peg doesn't fit in that square hole anymore. <laughs> sure. Um. So, um, okay, Sean, would you like to continue? I had a... Oh, I, I think Yeah, um, actually, the way that I would like to work it with you today, since you're uh, brand new, Robert, is, is to go ahead and finish this point with Keyshawn, and then we will uh, give you a basic introduction while he's lollygagging. Okay, sure. No, I was, I was kind of going to do an introduction, so, um, so this is fine. I guess we could just go to that. But, um, okay. All right. So basically, then let me finish that one point then about that. If we're going to deal with remorse through renunciation, then we can also deal with loss of things in the future by renouncing them in advance before they happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. For instance, looking at the laptop or the notebook or the cell phone from time to time, you can remind yourself this too shall pass. Uh, this cell phone's going to die. Let me use it and enjoy it while it lasts because it's going to it's going to die. Yeah. Okay. When you think fondly of your mother, especially when they're getting really old. Is this is about a girl, but not my mom. Pardon? <laughs> I said, this is about a girl, by the way, but not my mom. Oh, okay. Well, with a girl, you can say, yeah, I like you. But guess what? Marriages don't work. That whole thing about till death do us part was actually more of a business contract than it was anything about romantic love. Is that this warlord paid a high price for that woman from this warlord. Yeah. All kinds of tribute and everything, and he wants a good piece of merchandise that's going to be durable. 
this is where it all came from. Marriage was nothing but a but a business contract in the old days. So with that, we have to understand that uh, many of the long term marriages that lasted were because of the law. In fact, here's something that's really, really funny, and that is, is that in the 1950s, in the late 1950s, uh, the state of California changed their divorce laws to allow divorces to become more easily done, and the murder rate dropped in half. Wow. Wow. <laughs> This is a known yeah. statistic, but it's an old statistic now. Yeah, they changed the divorce laws to make divorce easy. In the old days, it was really, really tough. You might as well just blow them out. <laughs> I guess I'm just dodging a major bullet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. What we can also do is we can look at, at ancient history to recognize that in the old, old days, uh, where our, you know, human beings have spent literally m many more hundreds of thousands of years living in a jungle, being primitive, and trying to slowly figure things out, leaving a lot of um, old mistakes left along the way and, and old feelings, so that we come up today with behaving many times as if we were still back in the times of the jungle. Now, in those days, children grew up really fast. That, in fact, still in India, with no child labor laws, I have had many times to have uh, kids age six to wait on my table. They, I mean, if you want a good, high-quality, first-class waiter, six-year-olds could do that job just fine. A lot of jobs can be done. And so, uh, but in our Western culture, oh no, it takes a whole lot longer. But in fact, now it looks like that they've caught up to the point that, yeah, uh, Americans don't grow up and become fully adult until about the age of 26. Mm. And even that's problematic. <laughs> Because even, uh, but that's about the best shot at it. Um, uh, the, the first crack at, at adulthood is about age 25, 26. Um, I have a question. Sure. About the, the marriage aspect. So, you know, it seems to be a very natural desire, you know, to want a partner, you know, or, or a soulmate. It's part of your genes, right down to the yeah. very basic part. It's, it's basically deeply buried um in our genes for instance let us say that you had two kinds of people on the planet earth those that like sex and those that didn't really care about it didn't have anything to do with it guess who's going to be your ancestors <laughs> the first you're right the ones who really like it then in fact you yeah. could say that the genetic code system that that tries to propagate and multiply itself actually has the built-in thing to make it really pleasurable so that the uh, organism that has that gene is going to really want to do it. It's sure. built into our genetic system. It's part of our instinctual behavior of wanting things and grabbing things. Okay. Yeah. Now, wanting and grabbing things, dogs do that more with other 
then I mean, but the only way that they can grab and hold of anything is with their mouth. And you'll see a dog pick up a great big piece of meat and he'll carry it and sneak away someplace. All right. And so this idea of materialism. Speaking of, got a puppy right here. Uh huh. You know, his name's Rocky. But anyhow, thought I'd, he was just right next to me. I thought it was a good time. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so back to the point that children in the old days in our society were functionally human beings at the age of six. In our society, six-year-olds are put in school and kept children. Yes. In the ancient society, six-year-olds were good to go, which means that moms and dads living together in order to support and bring up a child and, and let it get ready to go out on its own is actually in our genetic code a much shorter period of time until do death do your part, which is pretty long term. And so genetically, relationships come and go. If you understand that, that temporary quality of relationships, then you can begin to let go of it in, in the beginning, in the sense that, yeah, this relationship is going to go. Even, even in a marriage, one of us is going to die or we're going to try to kill each other in the process. Yeah. Okay. So as long as the relationship is marvelous, let us enjoy it in the here now, knowing and keep remembering and reminding ourselves that this too shall pass. This laptop is going to bust. It's going to go kapooey. I'd better have things backed up. If I do things wisely, I can plan in advance that shit happens. Most yeah. of the people go around and not understanding Murphy's Law and shit happens and they say, what happened? <laughs> yeah, you got to get a few girlfriends then. That's what it is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Rotation. laughs> yeah. yeah uh, I mean, that, I forgot. Well, the question I was going to say was that um, so like that that works with dealing with uh, with reducing the blow of that loss. If you constantly remember, like, this is going to be done at some point soon enough, it's not as bad. Mm -hmm. That's right. When you keep track of the nature, the fact that things are temporary, things are to be enjoyed now, not stored away for the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so... This is the way of, of uh, beginning to understand that you will lose things. And if you lose things with attachment, you will feel bad. Therefore, you can plan in advance that when this cell phone, when this laptop, when this relationship dies, I will be willing to say goodbye to it. And let it go and relinquish it. Knowing that my only other option is to put myself through hell. The hell of lost something. Knowing in advance, we can do that. Do you so, do that? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but like, do that joyfully. Like, one day... I'll some be, days, I'll, there it goes. Poof, it's gone. Yeah. 
Like, I won't yeah. have a, I won't have a laptop to worry about, kind of. Yeah, I remember reading an article in the BBC about um, Tibetan uh, death meditation. It might have been Bhutan. It was Bhutanese, actually. In, in Bhutan, five times a day, they do this meditation on death and their own death in different ways that they could die and reported feeling happier for doing that, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. You know, you would think, why would that be happy to imagine yourself? You know, well, we ain't there. dead yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's enjoy the moment while we got it, because you ain't soon enough. You ain't going to have it. So I had a Vipassana teacher at Cham Tong in Thailand, and uh, he made the he made the comment to me once that, you know, there's there's no good, no bad, just Namarupa. You know, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on that. It was a long time ago, so I might be missing a little bit of context, but that was what one of the things that stuck out to me. Nama Rupa is a Pali expression that fits in, I think it's step five of uh, four of Paticca Samupada, and it has a very specific meaning to those who understand the teachings of the Buddha through Paticca Samuppada. Okay. Nama Rupa is actually perception itself. What is what this is talking about is, is that it's in our perceptual system is where good and bad is created in the mind. The reality just is. And that that reality that just is, then is filtered, mucked with, played with, added to by the individual observer who is bringing in his own old past experiences, plugging into the Namarupa process so that the Namarupa process is now tainted with his past, mainly his past feelings. So that the new object that arises is already poisonous. So when that new object that arises in the mind, I didn't know we were going to go through a full particular sabapada with just one little thing. But when that arises in the mind, you see, it arises in the sense of a feeling of I like it, I don't like it. But if I like it, that will rot into I want it. And if I like it and want it, that rots into it must be good. And so all of our judgments of good and bad uh, are um, based upon feelings rather than wisdom, rather than actually investigating the moment, checking things out for sure, and making sure that we understand things correctly. And by being able to see all sides of it, if you can only see one side of it, that's when we do the judgments of the good and the bad. One side's good and one side's bad. If you see everything around it, you'll recognize it just is. It's not a matter of what's good and what's bad. That good and bad is a judgment that actually destroys our paradise. And it's also a basic point of the teachings of the Buddha in the sense that we have unwholesome thoughts that are critical. We have critical thoughts, and those critical thoughts are this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is a bar, you got to be over it, this is, you got to go clean up your room, and the whole nine yards, then, of all the rice rules, rituals, ceremonies, and 
laws come into play. And so we have all of these uh, programmed ways of doing things, our society that's built into the mind as a standard. And anything that doesn't come up to that standard, we're judging it as good or bad. But that judgment is based upon, do I like it or do I not like it? So in this little town, the people in that town are, are trained in school uh, to learn to love that the football team that's associated with that high school. And they do that in every little town. And so when two little towns get together, whose team do they cheer for? They cheer for my team, and my team is in my town, and that's trained. And so they, all the boys in this town think that they're better than all the boys in this town, and so when they get together, they want to prove that. And hence you have <clears throat> uh, what they call football or soccer in Europe, is these teams get wild between Manchester and, and, and whatnot. And this is that whole point is, is that we, <clears throat> we think this is right and this is good and, and my religion is better than your religion is all what's the whole strife in the whole world. Or my country's better than your country. But then when we get inside our own minds, we recognize we continue to do that with our own life critical and what we need to do is change our whole way of thinking from being critical of ourselves into being nurturing to ourselves this is the whole basic point of the practices let's come out of this duality of yes and no right and wrong good and bad good enough but this is perfect because you know you've heard the story about that uh, many people uh, have it to where the perfect is the enemy of the good. Right? This is good, but this is better. Therefore, this is now is not good enough. Okay, and this is the this is the kind of thinking that causes dukkha. Is that comparison based upon feelings instead of wisdom? In wisdom, in real wisdom, we recognize many times there's no di distinction. In other words, if you are from a third town, then to you, it wouldn't matter whether town A or town B's football team won that Friday night football match. Doesn't matter to you. But it sure matters to the people who are attached to each individual team. If we win, that's good. And if we lose, that's bad. But someone from the outside who's taking an overall view of it, he doesn't see it from just one side. And so for him, there's no good or there's no bad. So when you withdraw from yourself, then you can begin to see things as not good, not bad, just this is how it is. And now we can relish it with the way that it really is. We can appreciate it and bring joy in the fact that things are okay as they are. We begin to nurture and care for ourselves. And this is the whole practice then of Anapanasati is a step-by-step -step sequence of events that build, help build the skills to come out of our critical, unwholesome thinking 
into nurturing wholesome thinking. So critical thinking has enemies, nurturing thinking has friends. a question sort of sure about that stuff so uh because i was watching another one of your talks and um discussing how when there's like the negative feeling there or like the, what you would consider what you would call a negative feeling but then you're making a judgment call so i think you kind of said like the thing to do there is like you say like this is everything is already okay like even with this this feeling here and then but as you say that like that's okay, then you've already come out of the critical. So therefore you're 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 already coming into more of a nurturing and then you can like continue to say that everything is okay. And then eventually like you're kind of up into uh getting beyond even the accepting. Is that is that an accurate um I guess recital of like when you have those kind of negative feelings sort of in you uh, on a good way to handle that? Yes, exactly. In fact, while you were saying that, the phrase came to mind, free at last, free at last. The darn girl left me, free at last. <laughs> now, we could plug that in to many different things. The, uh, the one who started it was um, Martin Luther King, when he said, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, free at last, right? He wasn't free. But then Nietzsche would come by and say, free at last, free at last. There is no God Almighty, free at last. <laughs> so we yeah. can use that then, free at last, the girl's gone. Free at last, all right? So we can always think of any time that we lose something, that means that we've got more freedom. So the less you own, the freer you are. Yeah. Imagine then looking at that in the sense of travel, because the Buddha uses the um, uh, travel as an analogy for the hindrances of the mind. And when you're out traveling, you've probably seen them. I've seen them at the airport. In fact, it looks like the Indians are the ones who do the biggest, bestest job of taking way too much stuff with them. I have seen Indians go uh, stand in line at the airport with a pile of luggage that needed a uh, pallet. There was so much stuff. You know, 8, 10, 12 bags or whatever like that. Now imagine the, uh, the, the seasoned, experienced traveler that, that walks on with just a small backpack, and that's all he's got, just one bag. Yeah. Now who's, who's more free? That family with the with you know eight, ten, twelve suitcases, big ones. Yeah. There was there was a friend of mine who came to visit several years ago, and um, he had so much luggage. We just happened to have um, uh, uh, basically I had the idea that because we didn't have the truck, that my daughter would go uh, uh, take the extra motorbike. And that way we could handle whatever luggage he had. The fact is, is that this guy had so much luggage 
that she had to put on a great big backpack. He put on a great big backpack. I had stuff in this part of it, and he wouldn't believe how much stuff we managed to get onto two motorbikes because <laughs> this guy had three major backpacks that he brought with him. And you can see that that's kind of a burden. The more we own and the more we have to carry around. So, in fact, one of the qualities of guys who do a lot of traveling, because I traveled around a lot, India, Thailand, all of Southeast Asia and whatnot. And every time that you move, you have to decide what you're going to carry with you and what you're going to leave behind. Yeah. That's when things get really, really interesting as to what's important and what's not important. Because I remember I, in India, I left a whole trail of stuff. Every time I parked myself someplace, when I left, I would leave half a bunch of stuff there. I remember a blanket and a, and a set of speakers and a whole bunches of different things. And I just, just leave them. I, <laughs> I have not been using that thing. Why am I carrying it around? So we can think of that with the, with the mental stuff, too. If we don't have any use for it, then why do we keep it hanging around? Why do we keep bringing thought moments back to those, that kind of baggage? Which basically mm -hmm. I'm talking about work to do, jobs to do, things that need to be done. Why do things need to be done? Well, it's broken. I've got to fix it. Well, what's broken? Well, there's a whole lot of things broken. I can think of a whole bunch of stuff that's broken, okay? When we think a whole bunch of stuff is broken, think about it. that as a bunch of baggage that we're carrying around that we don't need to carry. Things are not it's like broken. That. Yeah. I feel like one issue potentially is, you know, um, we can seem, it can seem like we get a lot of pleasure from certain attachments, right? You know, you can have... That's certain... why we suffer so when we lose it. Right. Right. It's because and... we think that that item gives us pleasure. Sure. I just so... had an email from a guy who says that... Uh, now is sometimes yet, and sometimes it's okay. And that misses the whole point. Now is always now. Sometimes his mind and yeah, and sometimes his mind is okay. And I don't know of anybody who's not like that. The question is, why so much yet? Yeah? <laughs> sure, sure. But uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, uh, say, with my puppy, for example. I really enjoy my relationship with my puppy, you know. Um, I would They're be, really great friends. They are great I've got friends. a few of them around here myself. In fact, we're I, just loaded down with animals. I, I heard them. I heard them earlier. That uh, made me feel like it was okay to bring them up to show you. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, um, I, um, I, uh, I do gain a lot of enjoyment from that. You know, and if someday say my puppy i had to give up my puppy for some reason you know i, I would be quite sad it's going to die right right before that, you that do or maybe you move to thailand or something and you don't have him anymore that i mean shit happens <laughs> who knows who knows yeah who knows um and i and i suppose then that that particular joy is gone right and i feel like there's an element of faith to some extent that. No, if you're care, if you are skillful enough 
to develop a warm, loving relationship with one dog, you're skillful enough to develop a warm, loving relationship with all kinds of things, including reality itself. Uh, sure. Yeah. This is reminding me so much of, uh, I was listening to a thing from uh, Robert Bea, was, was some old Robert Bea stuff, and he was reciting, I think it was Krishnamurti, and he was talking about, like, we, we like, give up. It was about renunciation. And it was talking about how we give up things, but we're not, like, giving up things because, like, we're really, what we're really doing is, like, coming, like, closer to kind of what you just said, like, enjoying reality, like, you know, that as it is, you know, as we give up, you know, whatever these material possessions are. Yes, that that's in fact uh, uh, one of the major delusions that people have and that it is um, encouraged, fostered, built on, uh, manufactured and made big by our society. Um, actually, I'll go, go ahead and give you the concept of the word that I use from time to time, greb, G-R- E.B. Government, religion, education, and business. Big business, any business. Anybody is in business means they're trying to sell you something. Selling you something means that they've got to convince you that you'll be better off with your with that product. Okay? That means they gotta make you want it. That means they gotta make you like it. That means that the individual has to go into the delusion of, I will be better with that product. I'm not good enough now. That's the whole point of business, is to convince you that you're not good enough now and that you'll be better off if you buy their product. But, it, but you look at education and they say exactly the same thing. You're not good enough now. You need more education. And that's been grilled into us from childhood, that we really do need that product education. And many of us get really, really curious and educate ourselves in all kinds of ways. And we still want more. You become an expert in five or six different fields. I mean, really go really to the depths of, for instance, uh, particle physics. It doesn't matter how deep into particle physics you know, there's still more to learn. There's stuff they don't know. And then there's other fields to go into. How much so education really gets us greedy for knowledge. And then religion. We all know what religion does to us. It gets us greedy for all kinds of things. Gods, heavens, magic. Um, and governments, they want you to vote, especially in America. And so they want to get you really hot, really angry, or promise you the moon or whatever like that. And so our whole society is built upon wanting you to be dissatisfied, leaving you with wanting more. Interesting. So if we get all of our cues from society, we'll wind up being wanting more, always wanting more. Whatever we get, it's not enough. And we can trace that back to the kinds of unwholesome thoughts that, that people have 
in the sense of that's an unwholesome thought right there is I'm not good enough. I want more. Yeah, I'm not I don't want to walk anymore. I want a motorbike. And you can see where Thailand went through exactly the same thing that China went through. First, we got to get people into shoes. Then we got to get them on a bicycle. Then we got to get them on a motorbike. Now we got to get them on a motor car. And now we got so much pollution, we don't know what to do. And guess what? They were just as happy getting that first pair of shoes. That was enough. They didn't need to <laughs> keep graduating. Did that happen in your lifetime? Yeah, it happened in yours. Wow. It's happened in many countries. It's happening in many countries right now, that little process of getting them into shoes, getting them into um, bicycles, getting them onto. In fact, that bicyclization is happening in Africa right now. Uh, <laughs> happened in Thailand. By the 1970s, they were into the motor motorbikeization, and then they got completely motorized, motorbikeized by the 90s, and so they're now into being automobilized. So we just need to remember to be okay now. Yeah, and everyone is still just as unhappy as they always were. It doesn't matter what they're driving. And yeah. every, no matter what they're driving, whatever they're driving is going to break. And nobody likes those repair bills. And that gives rise for all kinds of business deals, too. So this is what the society is built upon. It's built upon, the whole society is built upon a bait and switch. In, in other words, what is sold is not the product, but the desire for the product. But all they deliver is the product. They don't give you your heart's desire. Back in the 1950s, they would have showrooms of pretty cars, brand new cars, and they would always have a lady in an evening dress all dolled up and everything with the ideas that you buy our car, you get that girl. And nobody ever got a girl when they bought a car. At best, they got someone that was yakking at them to go get it fixed. <laughs> <laughs> So much for our material life. When we recognize how much baggage there is, we begin to look at things in a much more um, uh, getting down to basics. Uh, what the um, what the Buddha called the requisites: just enough food, just enough clothing, just enough shelter, and just enough medical attention. And you can see that when people don't have just enough of any of that thing, when they're homeless, when they don't have medical insurance, when they don't have uh, food availability, and that happens with people, and they get really miserable. But then when they get all of that stuff, they're not quite so miserable anymore, but then it doesn't matter how much of all of that they get, they still want more and more and more. So there's a basic foundation that we can come up to, and once we get to our own base level, we can say, okay, now I'm good to go. But we are in such a habit of 
saying, no, I'm not good enough. I have been listening to society and my parents and the older generation teaching me and telling me that I'm not good enough without this, that, and the other thing, without that diploma, this degree, that car, this girl, or whatever it is. And so we materialize our whole lives. We identify with who, as who we are with what jobs we do. Do you, do you think that if you were to, uh, tr- like, look at somebody in a village who is living on those requisites, I feel like the answer is yes. Like, are they happier than someone who has, like, American, essentially? Like, but they don't even practice meditation at all. You know, I feel automatically they'd be happier. Excuse the dog barking. The monkeys have come. <laughs> We, we, we have trained, in South Thailand, we have trained monkeys that climb the trees and pick the coconuts. It's the only wow. place in the world I know they do that. They have trained, actually, the baboons, but that's what they're doing here. Lucky, come here. Come here. No, no, you don't deal with that. That's not your problem. So, this is the whole point, then, of the teaching of the Buddha, is let's get real with what is really there, rather than going into the stories of that we are in need of something. Because, in fact, you're already good. You don't need anything. This is why the Zen folks will even go so far as to tell their new Zen students that you're already enlightened. Stop trying for anything. And yet most of the people who uh, practice uh, meditation or whatever, they do it to get some result. And so by definition of practicing meditation to get some result, not practicing correctly, because the Buddha uh, says that the Dhamma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And yet a lot of people will struggle with meditation because they want something out of it. Even some groups will go so far as to talk about a dark night of the soul in the Mahasi method, right? Right, why do they talk about a dark night of the soul? When in fact the whole teaching of the Buddha is right from the very beginning, let's get out of dark places. Let's come into the light. Let's look at the reality of the situation right from the very beginning. Let's not work ourselves down into some rat hole. But in the noting method, the noting method is to note whatever is there and then to note whatever is there and to note whatever is there, air how unwholesome it is. To where the real teachings of the Buddha is, is that we do that noting and investigation so that we can make a determination through that investigation of whether this is worth doing or not. Is this wholesome or not? Is this conducive to my well-being or is this getting me unhappy and upset? And so this is, um, this fits in in so many different suttas. In fact, there is one sutta, the name of it is two kinds of thought. 
and that we use that in the sense of two kinds of thoughts, wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts. And then in Anapanasati, uh, and in the Satipatthana, and in many other places, the Buddha talks about um, the hindrances, and how the hindrances must be removed. Well, we can then see the connection between unwholesome thoughts and hindrances. If we can see that connection, you can say, okay, that's just a different way of looking or a different expression. We can call them obstructions. But whatever it is, it's in the mind right in this moment and obstructing this particular moment. And when we can see those thoughts in this particular moment being obstructive, then we can throw them out. And then, because we have thrown them out, in fact, you could think of it in the sense of Newton's second law of thermodynamics. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So, in that regard, cleaning out the house leaves you with a clean house, right? Cleaning out the mind leaves you with a clean mind. But that's the basic teaching of the Buddha. It's not that we're trying to find out what is the right thing or the good thing to do. Merely all we need to do is to avoid the wrong things. But then we recognize, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of wrong stuff and not a whole lot of stuff that is not wrong. Here's an example of that. <clears throat> I, I generally ask it this way. Um, Keyshawn, how old are you? 23. Is that, a, is that the truth or is that a lie? The truth. Okay. Um, this time I'll ask you, and this time lie to me. Okay. okay. All right. How old are you? 25. How old are you? 26. How old are you? 27. How old are you? 30. You see where this is going, don't you? Lies are all over the place. Truth is small. The truth of how old you are is only one age. That's how old you are. Yeah. Anything else is a lie, but look how many lies there are that we can have in the mind as opposed to the, the amount of truth that we put in the mind is actually kind of limited, isn't it? Like there's an unlimited amount of magical thinking you could do. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's almost an unlimited amount of magical thinking. And um, I will put the magical thinking in the realm of cause and effect in the sense that magical thinking is either not seeing the cause to the effect, getting them backwards because we saw the effect first and then see the cause, we get them backwards and think the effect uh, made the cause. And then the other one is, is that um, we can't see that they're related. And so there's many different ways of magical thinking, but when we see cause and effect clearly, that's the reality of the situation. So we can make a lot of mistakes along the way and have a lot of different uh, wrong thinking or unwholesome thinking, and the amount of wholesome thinking is quite limited. And I would say that uh, we could write off from uh, from the beginning, find at least one or perhaps two things that we could put in the realm of um, wholesome thought. One wholesome thought would be about what's happening right in this very moment. Thoughts about the breathing, 
Thoughts about the feelings, thoughts about the body posture, thoughts about what's actually coming into the senses, being sensory open and receiving data from the external world, that would be a kind of reality to where thinking about something that happened last week, not so much. Right? But we can think of a lot of stuff that happened last week, and there's a whole lot of weeks in there. So we can go all kinds of stuff into uh, the various kind of thoughts that are happening. But the kind of thoughts that are really happening right now is kind of limited. There's not really much happening right now. Except that when we start looking, we recognize, oh, no, there's a whole lot of happening right now. The cause and effect is very fast, and there's a whole lot of causes making a whole lot of effects, and that um, we could even think of it as synchronicity. Have you ever heard of the word synchronicity? Magical yeah. thinking would be that all they hear of synchronicity and they want to control it. They say, okay, we can let's find some magic in there, or let's uh, uh, put it to good use or something like that. But another way of looking at synchronicity is, is that only occasionally do we wake up to see connections. Why is it that dad, who was an old, old friend of mine and a student from five, six years ago, and Noah, and Noah was the one that dad introduced, dad knew Noah, and introduced me to, or introduced Noah to me five years ago, why is it that I haven't heard from either one of them in months and then all of a sudden they both call at the same time? That's amazing. Until, no, it's not. It's just synchronicity. Things are just lining up like that. Um, um, so, in that but, regard, the more it, we look at things, the more we recognize that there's so much synchronicity happens all the time because things really are that interconnected and, and the cause and effect is that intertwined. We don't know the extent of it. All we know is, is that, wow, it's quite amazing to see what's going on. Yep. But that doesn't mean I own it or control it. It just means that I'm kind of surprised at how interconnected things really are. It's amazing. Because we can pay attention. Yes, Robert. So do you think, you know, the Buddha warns against, you know, the powers, magic, etc. And do you think perhaps one reason he might is because it's an egocentric way of looking at the world. Because if you think I am influencing it, I am influencing the, the, the synchronicity, that is creating an ego state and that's creating an, unwhol an unwholesome and un unskillful way to be. Thank you for mentioning that. Thank you for seeing that. That's only one of the dangers. But yeah, because we want to uh, believe in magic, the belief in magic automatically brings on the desire to want to do magic and to be magic and to have the status of the magic. And that's when the self comes into it. That if we can say, yeah, there's magic out there, big deal. Yeah, people do rise from the grave. Yeah, there are virgin births. So what? You know, big deal, no big deal. And we could just accept it. Then there's nothing to it. 
is only later when we uh, say, yeah, it's a big deal and it means something to me. It's important to me that that magic happened. A really good example of that is Sachi Sai Baba. He's dead now, but for many years, he was the biggest magician. They called him a god, many of them. He even pretended to be a god. And he would be the one who would sprinkle holy ash on people, right? What he did was he had ash that he would wet and put into a tiny, a small ball and let it dry. And then he would hold it in his hand in this uh, area here. And when it was time to do the holy ash, he would wave his hand like that, pull that thing up, do this to break up that holy ash, and here's holy ash all over the place, and people are marveling that the holy ash is coming magically. Oh no, there was cause and effect in there. Uh-huh. So, so speaking of this, uh, do you mind if I properly introduce myself? Because my coming across yourself was quite the coincidence for me, quite the synchronicity. Okay, um, so yeah, go ahead, take over. Okay, sure, so thank you. So I, uh, on Friday, I was listening to the Guru Viking podcast, which you were on, and mm-hmm. you were talking about this very subject of magical thinking. I thought it was a very interesting conversation. I listened to your other two conversations on the podcast, and I, and once you mentioned that you were from Swan Moak, and your teacher was a John Poe, I actually went to Swan Moak for my very first Vipassana retreat. When I was 19 years old, I'm 27, um, back in 2013, um, and I met a John Poe <laughs> and listened to many of his talks on, at the retreat at Swan Moak, my first ever Vipassana, you know, and, um, and I, I, w- I did one other after that at Wat Chom Tong, um, mm-hmm. and I'd love to do more, actually. It's been a long time. I've kind of, my practice has kind of gone in many different directions. I started with Zen, then I did Vipassana, then I did TM, then I, because I kind of, I kind of fell out, it's a very long story, but I kind of fell out of Vipassana, a complicated story, but then TM, and then back to Zen, and then to this Advaita Vedanta Ramana Maharshi sort of thing, which is what I've been doing the past few years, and then I, but I've, I've kind of, you know, sort of, um, sort of uh, wanted to go a bit deeper, you know, and then I'm, I'm listening, and I'm thinking, you know, it would be really, really great to have a meditation instructor. You know, that would be great to have like a teacher that I could speak with. And then I'm listening to this podcast, and I happen to be listening to a monk from my very first Vipassana place that happens to give these Skype instructions online all the time. And I was like, wow, what are the chances of that, you know? And, and I hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and I loved meeting a John Poe. He was a he was a great man. He was he was really special. You know, I, he's still he's still teaching, right? He's eighty seven now, and he does still do some teaching. Uh, yes, he he stays most of the time now at what? Uh, not, it's actually not a what, but it's a deepable one at on Kosamui, which is the oh, next cool. door island here. I, uh, you know, it's funny when I met him, um, I, uh, so I, I have two, 
I, there are a couple things that were said. It was like the kind of consultation, you know, um, when you consult with a meditation instructor or instructors, and Ajahn Po is one of the Ajahns there. And, um, and, uh, and I told him I was 19, and he said, I hope you come back, and I hope I'm not dead when you come back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, another thing he said, I asked him for life advice, and he said, you want to walk the middle way, you know, mm-hmm. um, don't get too nice of a car, too crappy of a car, you know, don't get too pretty of a wife or too ugly of a wife, don't make too much money or too little money, just middle way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that was my, yeah, it was a great conversation I had with him, so I still, I still reflect fondly upon that. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what he's talking about with that middle way was what we were talking about a while back with um, um, the the requisites. That you find out what your balance is. You don't want to go too much over that, but you don't want to go under that. You don't want to go living in a tent in downtown Los Angeles, for instance. That's not... <laughs> That's a bit below, (laughs) and we're looking for the middle path in all ways. I was considering that just the other day. (laughs) Yeah, you know, well, it's funny because the Buddha actually did something like that. You know, his own version of it when he joined the ascetics. Um, Absolutely, he tried both ways. He tried the extremes in both ways, the extremes of the hard high jhanas and the extremes of the um, um, self-flagellation and uh, austerities. And he recognized that there is a middle path. And that middle path is the path to awakening. And we'll talk more about that because it'll be a surprise what that middle path is or that middle point is not ordinary mind. Okay, that middle path is not ordinary mind. Why? Because ordinary mind, the people, the way that most people are thinking, is still has a lot of self-flagellation. It still has a lot of um, uh, austerities in it. It still has a lot of wanting something that we don't have. So it has both greed and uh, ill will built into the ordinary life how can we come to the point where we're not in in both of those that's the middle spot that's the sweet point and that's when the buddha said to himself why am i afraid of the pleasures of first jhana and then he recognized it is first jhana that is in fact that middle path middle path is the first is the middle path between um, harming ourselves and wanting things to make us complete. And so the two extremes, and you can see how our society is built upon those two extremes all the time. And so finding that middle... I gotta run, I'm sorry, but this is really great. Really great talk. Nice to meet you, Robert. Uh, nice to meet you too, Hope you got all, the, all, all the best. Feel free to add me on Skype, you know, or or however. But uh, you already but have, yeah. right? Because you you both are on Skype together now. You can find that this conversation and connect with it. Yeah, I'd love to hear about more of your experiences, Robert. Um, but I'll I'll call back in soon. 
Cool. All right, Keyshawn. Well, let's connect. Yep. Okay. Right. We'll talk Bye. later. Great to meet you. Cheers. Yep. So, Robert, let's talk a little bit about Anapanasati. Anapanasati actually is the Buddha's method of uh, practicing to develop the skills of the Eightfold Noble Path. And so understanding the Eightfold Noble Path right from the very beginning will really help in our, our practice in the sense of... Um, the Four Noble Truths, the entire teaching of the Buddha can be wrapped up into just one expression, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And basically what that means is, if you can see Dukkha, you can get out of it. And it does not mean the way that most Westerners uh, think of the teachings of the Buddha is Dukkha, 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 more Dukkha, look at that Dukkha, inspect it, get some insight out of that Dukkha, and eventually someday you'll be free from Dukkha. That's the way that a lot of Westerners hear that. Sure. But the actual teaching is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. If you can see it, imagine that you were walking through a, a cow pasture down to the other place where all the cows are, way down over there. But they've been all over this pasture for a long time, and there's cow pies everywhere, just all over the place. The question is, if you keep your eye on your destination and getting down to those cows, how many cow pies are you going to step in? Versus if you watch your step, look where you're going, avoid the cow pies, can you get to the other side without stepping in one? the likelihood of being able to uh, uh, get over to the other side without stepping in one because you're watching each step is much higher than if you put your eye on the goal. And just walk. Uh-huh. So this is how we practice is that we've got to bring our whole focus away from the goal of wherever it is, way off on the other side of the pasture, back to this next step, this next instant of time that's the important thing because the, the cow pie that we're about to step in is in fact right in front of us sure. <laughs> totally. and so this is a way of looking at the, the entire teachings of the buddha is is that we have to see it in order to step around it and one of the ways of being able to see it is to see it in the process of growing or how does this stuff come about in other words, we can see the cause of suffering. Then when we see the cause of suffering, we may be able to avoid it before the effect of suffering hits. Right? Sure. That's the point then, is, is that if we're quick, we can actually avoid that suffering because we avoid the cause of it. That leaves us with the third noble truth, and that is, is that we can actually spend some time and enjoy the fact that we're free from suffering. Right now, we're good. No problem. Got no trouble at all. And that's the way you start looking. Well, how do we do this practice? We practice it with the Eightfold Noble Path, and the Eightfold Noble Path is a set of skills that need to be developed, especially right view right sati to remember it doesn't matter what skills you have if you don't remember to do that skill it doesn't get done so you have to have the skill and the, one of the skills is to remember to do it that fits in right with the uh, murphy's law that we were talking about earlier 
And that is, right. is that we have to wake up in time because when things get really heavy, at the worst possible moment is the expression they use. If we don't have sati at that worst possible moment, then we can't apply the remedy that we know is going to work. Why? Because we get caught up in that worst possible moment rather than being awake to it. And so we need to develop sati as a skill over and over and over and over. And this is what gives rise then to the actual practice of anapanasati. Now, recently I read the question. Yes. Uh, uh, Sati means wisdom, correct? No, sati means wake up. Sati is used, they use the word mindfulness in English. Got it. Mindfulness meditation is is the word that is coming from the Pali word sati. Got it. And what does anapana mean? Ana means in and pana means out. I thought you did the course at Watson Mok. I'm sure that I did. I did. We taught we were taught the mindfulness of breath the first three days or four days, but I forgot the actual meaning of the word. So okay. it was a long time ago. It was eight years oh. ago. But, <laughs> All know. right. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but I still remember it very fondly, even if I right. forgot some things. So, By the way, one last note on that. Uh, Fra Damavidu, or John Damavidu, he gave amazing talks. Is, is he still there? Oh, yes. He's a really good friend of mine. He and I just jawbone a lot. Oh, he's great. Yeah, I loved his talks. They were fantastic. Um, anyhow, that, that's all. Please continue. <laughs> yes. These yeah. are my friends. I. This is my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so funny to be talking to someone that knows about it. I had one friend from that retreat who I still keep in touch with all these years later. And I, I met just minutes before the day before the retreat, basically. And um, and uh, aside from her, I have not talked to anyone from there. So it, it's quite fun to talk to someone from Swan Moke. But uh, anyway, please continue. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Thanks. <laughs> In any case, back to um, what I was about to say, that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had said that I've only recently said, uh, read it. Uh, and when he's when he said it, I knew that it was intrinsically correct. And what he said was is that Anapanasati was the only meditation method that the Buddha ever taught. Yep, I remember that. Anapanasati is the only meditation method that the Buddha ever taught. Well, where did all of these forty types of meditation come from? Then that is in the Vasudhimaga and re- re- referencing back to the Satipatthana Sutta. The answer to that is, is that if you practice Anapanasati correctly, you're doing all of those 40 things. Hmm. And that some of the stuff that's in there came from outside or before the Buddha. And because they get mentioned, for instance, the Kasina meditations were stuff that the Buddha was doing before. Uh, And you can think of uh, the Kasina meditations as external or outside meditations, fire meditations, water meditations. A Kasina actually is a disc that's about uh, 12 inches around, uh, made from either um, leaves or uh, from mud, giving a red Kasina or a green Kasina. And what the meditator does is he just looks at it 
And then he closes his eyes and try to recreate it. Then he opens his eyes again and tries to fill in the detail until he gets a complete mental image of that casino. Also, fire is easy to get enthralled with. You can see kids, they, you know, candle gazing or uh, whatever, that uh, fire is enticing to the eyes. And so we just go right into it. So these are the kind of meditations that were there, as well as the charnel ground meditations. Um, that are in the uh, this list of 40 that um, are adjunct, but that the main thing uh, is mindfulness in the sense of the waking up process and to wake up to what thoughts are wholesome and what thoughts are unwholesome and then to start putting the wholesome thoughts in the mind and removing unwholesome thoughts. And so this is, but you, we can do that. Like I said, with the second law of thermodynamics, if you throw that bad thought out, you're left with the energy that can take you into joy. This is what pity and sukha are all about, that when we change the mind and throw the garbage out and clean out with uh, wholesome thoughts, um, which is actually stepped in about Anapanasati to gladden the mind, is to as to be in the real the reality to be here now and the here now is safe look around you there is no danger you don't have any alligators on the floor you don't have any pythons calling up your leg you don't have any mafia beating your door down you're safe so if we're safe in this present moment why is it that we have this underlying deep uneasy feeling that something's not quite right, something's got to be dangerous, something needs to be fixed. The yeah. answer is, is that something we're, we're just in the habit of it. So if we can detect that we feel that feeling, we can take a deep breath. And there's no problem right now. Everything is okay right now. This moment is good. If we can come to this present moment and enjoy this present moment, that's all we need to do. Is just to keep reminding ourselves to keep coming back to this present moment with joy. The joy is, wow, it's what a relief to be finished with all the past and all the future that I was making up. Sure. All Boy. the work I was giving myself to do. And I don't have to do any of that work. I'm going to sit here and just enjoy the moment. Totally. So, um... So it's been a very long time since I've practiced Anapanasati. Um, you know, the you know, I've been practicing what I've been practicing recently was this uh, this type of have you ever heard of the book I Am That by Sri Nisargadat Maharaj? It's one of the classics. Well, that, what you just said, I am that, can be thought of as step ten of Anapanasati. Huh. This and a better way of saying it would be this is it. Right, right. This is it, which is another word of saying that I am that, but I am that in the sense that we are expanding. I'm not this tiny little thing. I'm at one with everything. I'm part of the show. I'm not in right. the ocean. I am the ocean. I'm part of the ocean. 
right. And and that's been my meditation the last few years. It's just been that, just focusing on I am. Just sitting in a chair, I am is my mantra. And then eventually that would take me to this place of just pure expansiveness, you know. And and I'd be okay with thoughts coming and going, and it's kind of like whatever, you know. <laughs> they would come, they'd go, but I would just focus on that. Um, and for some reason, I've gotten just kind of neglectful of this, kind of lazy about it. You know, I, I don't know why, you know, I don't know what's caused this laggardness, but I am very interested, like perhaps trying the Anampanasati will take me in the right direction, you know? Um, yes. So, so yep. let's look back at that word that you used expansion, expansive. Okay. Another way of thinking of expansive is not crowded. Not crowded. Okay. Extreme joy, too. Well, that again is going towards the uh, towards the point of uh, that you will naturally float off into space if you're not tied to the ground or if you're not loaded down with stones. All right. So that expansive quality that you're talking about didn't disappear on its own. It just merely got crowded. Hmm. Something came in to disturb the emptiness that was already there. The expansiveness was being interrupted because of a newly arrival item. And that newly arriving item is, in fact, what kept you from now experiencing the expansiveness that was already there before and was there while you were noticing it. And now you're not noticing it anymore because you're too busy paying attention to that new item that is just newly arrived that we call a hindrance of the mind. Sure. And when you throw that hindrance back out, now you've got that expansiveness again. Right. And, you know, one thing that was amazing about it is just the sheer joy. You know, I would be sitting in a chair, nothing is going on, and just extremely happy you know yeah and happy just because no worries i, I mean doing. people get really happy when they've got nothing to worry about no worries i've got nothing to worry about got no job to do no place to go nothing to do but originally yeah. or initially rather when that happens people will say oh well i'll get bored right right now we're talking about the restless of the mind and the restless of the mind is buried in uh, the fear that things are not right and that I've got to go do something. And so right. when the children get bored, what they mean is this moment is still not good enough. I am now crowding it with things are not that, good enough. Right. And that would happen too. amidst the joy. There would be a little bit of restlessness that would arise. You know, that would be dissatisfied for whatever reason or just feel the need to act up, you know. And um, and it's almost like it's not even a, you, you know, it's just like some sub personality. That's the whole point is not yeah. you. It's just a hindrance that arose. You were not the hindrance. You were not your thoughts. Sure. The thoughts just yeah. come and go. There they go. I mean, they're like clouds in the sky, except the clouds last at least a minute or two. Thoughts only are about a second or less. Sure, totally. So, yeah, so I'm curious, um, you, you know, so as far as how to proceed here. So, um, 
So okay, when you sit down, the way that we're doing it is we're going to yeah. remember. Sati is the first skill to be developed. Right. The initial skill, but the underlying skill of that is right view. And the right view is basically that we're going to investigate. We're going to look and see what's going on. When we do see what's going on, and now is time for right effort. Eightfold Noble Path, right view, right sati, right effort. And the right effort then we're going to say is twofold. One is to throw the stuff out of the mind and gladden the mind. And the other one is to take a deep breath. And to put the mindfulness or to put our sati now on the breathing, but in the way of this is this breath right now. And this breath is interacting with the entire universe surrounding. Okay, and so that in and out gives life and the out gives exhaust. We throw the old out, we bring in the new in this cycle, in and out in and out and every time that we have a long in-breath we have a point of sati in there to make sure that this is a long in-breath and then we at the point of sati when we're on the out-breath we have a point saying this is a long out-breath then we don't have to say that in words it's just noting that this is a long out-breath because if we let the breathing to go back to normal then the mind is easy just to wander away but we're actually focusing the mind to make sure that this is a long in-breath. Well, after you're starting the long in-breath, the long in-breath is going to be long enough. There's all kinds of other stuff to do. But in the initial part, we only make sure that the only job that we've got to do is to make sure that this is a long in-breath and this is a long out-breath. That making sure of the long in-breath and making sure of the long out-breath, that's the sati. The making sure is the waking up to make sure that this is a long breath. That's half of right effort. The other half of right effort is what we're doing the rest of the time of the thinking is to making sure that the thoughts that we have are wholesome thoughts. So thoughts of metta, thoughts of everything is all right, everything is fine, thoughts of, um, in fact, I'll give you um, a meditation. Maybe you've heard of, of this guy before. His name is James Brown. Um, I believe so. Yes. Yes, uh, he was the mentor I'm, of I'm Al Sharpton. He's the mentor James. of. Oh, James Brown. Okay, I know the 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 musician. You mean? Yes, the singer. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I know James. The Brown. James Brown meditation is. I feel good. Da, da, da. But you see the happiness and the joy in there. I feel good. Okay, so that's the James Brown meditation. I feel good. I feel good. I feel fine. Everything's all right. Okay, and you can also go with I am that. There it is. This is it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm okay. This is the kind of stuff that we want to tell ourselves. We want to uh, reassure ourselves that everything is all right, that there is no work to do, there is no problems to solve, there is nothing to fix, and everything is all right just right now. 
no dangers, no worries. So with, with security and safety and contentment brings satisfaction. And we become satisfied with the way things are right now. And these are the three skills that we have, right view, right sati, and right effort, bringing on the fourth skill. And that fourth skill now would be right attitude. And the right attitude is basically, I can do this. So I am that is actually a practice of uh, right attitude. This is it. I can do this. Success. This is the new word that we pile on. Besides the word satisfaction, we're adding the word successful. That we're successful at throwing the hindrances out. We're successful at feeling satisfaction. This is now the pity, uh, um, the Pali word, pity sukha. That feeling of pity is the joy of winning. It's the joy of knowledge that this is it. We found it. It's that relief that we feel. And that you've done this before. You've looked. You've been uh, looking for your car keys. The longer you look, the worse you feel. But then, when you finally do find them, that sense of joy. Just great. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) Okay, that sense of relief, that sense of joy. Finally, I've got it. Finally, I can stop looking. Finally, I can stop worrying. I found what I was looking for. This present moment is what we've been looking for. And we finally found it. And that brings great joy, great uh, feeling of uh, uh, success and satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is pity. And this is sukha, and it is fostered and engendered through the Anapanasati, breathing deeply, getting the mind uh, full of energy and whatnot. But a lot of people think that meditation is going deep. And by going, thinking they're going deep and watching the breath but not really controlling the breath, their breathing becomes really shallow. And then what they're noting, it winds up being noting the hindrances that they haven't thrown out yet. And they go deeper and deeper, and maybe the mind will get dull. Maybe the mind will go off into an an altered state, a trance or whatever like that. And people call that meditation and think that that's successful. But really, the practice of the Buddha is quite the opposite of that. It's coming out of the hindrances, not noting them. It's only noting the dukkha enough to see this is dukkha, and I'm out of here. And and so I suppose what what how you would define dukkha in this case would be anything that's not satisfying. It's okay. It's great. You know, dukkha is anything that's not completely satisfying. In fact, the word sukha, the word for satisfaction and pleasure, is exactly opposite of the word dukkha. Not only in the Pali that's true, but it's also true in the Thai. But it's also true, I've heard recently, in Gujarati, that Dukhi and Sukhi are exact opposites in the Gujarati language. Duke and Sukh are exact opposites in the Thai language. 
and in the Pali, Dukkha and Sukham are exact opposites. So Dukkha Naroda is nothing but the Sukha of the first jhana. The pleasure of everything's okay, everything is fine, everything, and we're alert and sharp and focused and wise and not being hindered by the past or aroused by the future. That what's happening right now is all there is that we need to have any curiosity about. Sure. So, um, so for some reason, the breath has always been a meditation object that I haven't loved. I, I've kind of gravitated more towards mantras. Well, I think you should stop then. Uh, I mean, stop breathing. Stop breathing. <laughs> yeah, just stop. Don't breathe. <laughs> Go for five, maybe ten minutes, and then decide whether you like that you like the breath. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> you know, and and perhaps like that reflects like just kind of a uncomfortableness with myself. You know, to some degree, right? You know, and it it does take effort, and deep yeah. breathing takes some effort. But once that effort is put in, it becomes um, a habit, and it's automatic. It's like uh, the the little dude walking into the gym the first day, and um, he sees a dumbbell on the floor, and he picks it up to put it in the rack, and it weighs two kilos, and he can't hardly struggle to get it over there put up. Two years later, after all of this exercise, and now there's a six, there's a ten pound dumbbell on the floor, and he can pick that up and just drop it easily. Sure. So because he's think, done the skill development. He's developed the skill. And and much of that skill is his attitude that I can handle 10 kilos. Sure, sure. The first so, day he walked in, two kilos, that's heavy. So why do you and think so the you're at the, and So you're at that point of the breath is work. It's heavy. Sure. The answer totally. is if you don't do it, you'll die. And if you do do it, why don't you enjoy it? Sure, sure, totally. So, uh, so does the Buddha? So, why does the Buddha recommend the breath in particular? Of all the different things you could have as an object, why, why the breath? Because of the physiological advantage. Hmm. The physiological advantage is is that when people are not breathing well their mind is not sharp and focused. It's needed for wisdom. Also, there's an emphasis on the out-breath in the sense of uh, the sigh. But uh, what I mean by that is actually just the exhaust of... <sighs> now, what that does is that it cleans things out. Not only does it bring a lot of the carbon dioxide that's just sitting in the lungs with shallow breathing, just a little bit in and a little bit out, and you have a little bit of fresh air amongst all the gas, and then you have a little bit of exhale with, with shallow breathing, the lungs build up carbon dioxide. But if you're breathing naturally, then there's not so much as... Basically, what we can say, and I say basically with a pun, but I'll get into that in a moment. Basically, uh, human beings are acid machines. And we need to lower the pH level. And one of the ways of lowering the pH level 
is with the blood oxygen level as opposed to the blood carbon dioxide level. Do you know what carbon di uh, carbon car excuse me, carbonic acid? Do you know what no, is no. carbonic acid? Not they call it acid rain. Does that give you a hint? Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> well, what it is is that it's the combination of water and carbon dioxide. And the more carbon dioxide there is in the water, the more it's acidic. So, if we've got carbon dioxide in the bloodstream, most of the blood is water, so you've got water and carbon dioxide, and the blood pH level goes up. Where does that acid come from? Well, it comes from the breakdown of adrenaline, as well as um, heartburn and acid. I mean, all of these words that we have in our English language is pointing to something, and that is, is that one of the things we can do is, is that we can exhaust that with the breath, because these little tiny molecules of carbon dioxide as well as all of the amino acids that are floating around in the blood. And uh, a side benefit you would say is that basically there's a combination of the kidneys and the breath that do the purification of the blood. So if the, the, uh, the breath is not doing its job, that puts an extra overload on the kidneys. Not only does it have to filter out the big junk, it's got to go the filtering of the little junk also because the breath is not full and robust. So if the breathing is full and robust, that means we're bringing a lot of oxygen in, oxygenating the body to the point that it feels tingly alive, vibrantly alive, as well as we're getting enough oxygen to the brain so that the brain, you know, you probably heard that uh, most of the calories that a human burns is in the is in the head, yeah. which uh, kind of makes it interesting about weightlifting for weight loss. Because if you really want to lose weight, burn calories. If you want to learn burn calories, worry about something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But you, uh, uh, but that's the key that, okay, we need to oxygenate the blood. We need to get the blood going so that we can give the, the supercomputer in the front all of the effort and energy it needs to do its job. Because if it, there's, the blood oxygen goes lower, the frontal cortex shuts down, leaving the anterior cortex, or excuse me, the, uh, the posterior cortex. Um, what is called the reptilian brain, the automatic, the part of the brain that is the last to go. The part of the brain that still is working during sleep time, because if you didn't have that part of the brain functioning, you'd stop breathing, the heart would stop, the body chemistry would slow down and die. So there's a part of the brain that's functioning all the time. That's the emergency survival mechanism that, that meditators go into when they're not breathing well enough. Sure. Interesting. Very interesting. So we so, need to keep that breath, breath going. That's why the Buddha gave Anapanasati as the practice, not just noting the breath, but actually controlling the breath. Now, here's something else. If you can't control even your breath, how in the world do you expect to be able to control your mind? You don't. All right. Another way of thinking it is, if you can control your breath, isn't that also a kind of a way of controlling the mind? 
It's not really the breath you are controlling. It's the mind that you're finally controlling. And so the first exercise then, the first skill to be developed is the ability to take a deep breath and remember to take a deep breath and to sigh and relax. And then by doing so and paying attention to that breath, we are actually here in this present moment. You can't watch last year's breath or next month's breath. Only uh, this one. So quick, so it's. 11.35 where I am, and I really have to get going because I've worked tomorrow. But I, 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 but I, I, just a few more questions. So, um, uh, so first off, thank you very much for this. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. And for taking the time to talk to some random person from New York, calling you up. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, but second, um, as far as questions What's go, New York got to do with it? Oh, uh, Nothing. <laughs> I'm thinking of Tina Turner now. Yeah. What's love got to do with it? You know, yeah. some random yeah, person yeah. is all we need. It doesn't matter if they're from New York or not. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it's a 12-hour difference, you know. It's like, yes, uh, I far know. Away. Yeah, far away. Um, but anyway, so a couple things. So one is, um, is should I count the, count the length of the breath? And should, I should breathe from the stomach. Right? There's a whole That's lot like, of stuff that we can talk about. We're just yeah. getting a basic introduction. I tell you what, since it's late for you, why don't we uh, not schedule, but just kind of plan on that you'll call me in a couple of days and we'll continue on in this okay, description. Sure. Okay. That sounds great. And um, how long should I meditate for? Like what, what length would you recommend? As long as you can enjoy it. Okay. Don't uh, let the clock be your enemy. Okay. The Buddha okay. didn't have a clock. That is true. You know, it's funny. I, I always envied those people that would go to sit in a cave for 12 years. You know, I thought, oh, that, that'd be great to go do that someday. But you don't plan on living your life sitting in a cave, do you? No. But, well, there must uh, be more to Sanapatasati than sitting in a cave. What's what? I say then there must be more to Anapanasati than sitting in a cave. There is. You can do it anywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've already yeah. got your breath with you. You don't have to make a casino to do meditation. That is true. That is true. Um, there anyway, it is. Friend, well, this has been great. Thanks thanks so much again. And uh, great to meet you. Um, Saudi cop. Okay. Uh, when are you going to call again? Um, probably, I guess, in a few days. Um, All right. That'll be great. Maybe on, in two days or something. Okay, great. So, All right. Well, excellent. And cop, coon, cop. Start start watching your breath, taking a deep breath. Enjoy your moment. All right. Keep, we'll do. Keep practicing that anytime you can remember. That's when you do it is when you can remember to do it. So practice remembering. Awesome. We'll do. All right. We'll talk you, about friend. some of the details later. All right. Talk soon. Cheers.